Hey, this is Brian Golden, lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I also really want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And I want to let you know that now you can watch these messages as well, anytime and anywhere. And the easiest way to do that is on the Centerpoint Church app. In addition to that, the Centerpoint app is also the easiest way to stay connected with what's happening at Centerpoint. So go to your favorite app store, search Centerpoint Church Florida, and you'll find it right there. Most importantly, I really want to say if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just investigating who Jesus is, I really hope this message encourages you to take your next step in your journey of faith or in your journey of investigating faith. Thanks again for listening. So we started a series on David that picks up in the 11th century, and we've made it, unfortunately, like a children's story with a a moral kind of outlay to it, and it totally loses context and power, but it is such a relevant story, the narratives of David's life. And if you haven't been around the church for a while, you maybe have heard some of it. I don't ever take that for granted. I mean, people last week after service, like, I've never heard that story of David and Goliath. Um, I love that. I love that you're here. I love that we have that kind of church. But um, it's an incredibly relevant story. And what I want to talk about today, um, it really intersects with all of our stories. I love this narrative, not for what happens, but what we learn from it. And here's what you will find. Here's the relevance of the story that I want to talk about today from the life of David, and it's this, that for all of us, there is this place that ultimately we can kind of gravitate toward where we start to feel either angry or alone or isolated or ultimately fearing something in the future. And all of us are going to experience those emotions. All of us are going to experience those conditions. And in those moments, and you just need to know this, that in those moments where you experience those things, you feel those things, the ways of God, if you want to say it that way, or the relevancy of God seems to be kind of antiquated. And in that moment, you're not tempted to run to God, you're tempted to run away from God. And in fact, it has the possibility when you start to feel those things or you're in those kind of circumstances, it has the possibility to override ethical and even moral standards that you had held to at previously, previous seasons of your life. And all of a sudden, they just seem irrelevant. All of a sudden, it just what you held to before, you're not quite as adamant about any longer. In fact, I would even say this, and I think this is a story for a lot of people watching, listening in the houses, is those conditions that I'm talking about, like for some of you, they surround your greatest regrets. Like it was those emotions, it was those conditions, it was circumstances that were characterized by anger, isolation, and fear. And now you look back and there's some things that you wish you could undo, and it kind of stemmed from that place. And what we do a lot of times, and this is just human nature, is when we start to feel those things, we, we just feel like we need to do something. Like we just feel like we need to act. And whether that's to distract ourselves, whether that's to feel better, whether that's to reach for something that you think is, is going to solve the problem, but we just feel like we need to act. The problem is a lot of times when we're feeling those emotions or those conditions, we act and we feel like we need to do something. And what we choose to do only compounds the problem. We only feel more of what we already felt. It's a dangerous place to be. And all of us experience it. All of us have been in the place of anger, isolation, feeling alone, feeling like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And the fear of tomorrow is like terrifying me. One of the things about David's life is he had two epic failures. The one we give a lot of airplay to is the one that everybody talks about. Maybe you've heard about. He's in his 50s. I'm not going to tell that story. But the other one that never gets airplay, one of David's greatest regrets, worst seasons of his life, he's in his early 20s. Nobody ever talks about it. 
And David has just defeated the Goliath. And if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that message on any podcast catch or check it out on the app. But he defeats Goliath, this giant, in the Valley of Elah. And David is 15 years old. I mean, 15. He becomes the most famous man in Israel instantly. He becomes incredibly influential, not because of his title, but just because of who he is. He probably has more power than the king. And immediately Saul, who we find out all throughout these Old Testament narratives, is messed up. And Saul is so consumed with jealousy and so nervous about David's influence and power, they start to go crazy. And he starts to, to devise a plan of how he's basically going to limit David's influence. And his plan was, I'm going to get him to marry one of my daughters, and then I'm going to become one of those crazy father-in-laws where I'm just going to control him. And some of you are like, my story's intersecting with this story already. Like that, that's relevant. <clears throat> so that's, that's, what, um, that's what Saul was going to try to do. Saul, the king of Israel, David, who's now this, this mighty warrior. They're, they're writing songs about him. He's got all of this fame. And so da- Saul comes to David and says, hey, I, I want to marry you off to one of my daughters. And David's like, are, are you kidding me? I'm David. And this is what we talked about last week. Incredibly, almost reluctant, confident, and yet humble. And David's like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I can't marry your daughter. You're the king of Israel. And who am I? And it's funny because everything David does turns to gold. Immediately when, when David turns down the offer, he, he becomes more influential. People in the kingdom are like, are you kidding? How humble is David? How amazing is David that he would turn down marrying one of the king's daughters? I mean, everything... David does his right, and it just infuriates Saul even more. And I think David's also thinking about the offer of marrying Saul's, you know, one of Saul's daughters. He's like, I'm, I'm 15 years old. I am 10 years away from my frontal lobe being fully developed. I cannot drive on my own. I, don't, I can't, I gotta, I gotta be with somebody every time I drive a chariot. I don't think, I don't think I should be getting married at 15. And, and we don't live in Kentucky. This is Jerusalem. Like, we shouldn't. We should, that was inappropriate. I wasn't in the first service and there it goes. Can't help myself. So I apologize to people who podcast from Kentucky. Um, so, so he declines the offer, but then David ends up falling in love with one of Saul's daughter anyway by the name of Michael. And he becomes really great friends. I mean, best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And so all of a sudden, Saul starts to regret that he ever wanted David as part of his family because he just grows more powerful and more influential. And he's like, well, I don't know what to do with this guy. And so he just devised another plan that he's going to create these um, scenarios for David to go out to battle, and he's going to make them impossible missions so that David will lose his life. So basically, they're suicide missions unbeknownst to David. And so Saul orchestrates them, sends David out to battle to lead these missions, going, there's no way he's going to survive. And David survives every single time. Not only does he survive, he conquers every single time. And his power and influence only grows. People love him even more. He goes out to these impossible missions and he comes back successful every time. And so all of a sudden, things kind of come to a head and things are so turbulent. And one night, Saul just loses it. Dinner in ancient times was an incredibly uh, meaningful time. And so at dinner in the palace, David doesn't show up for several nights because there's so much turmoil going on. Jonathan keeps covering for him. And then one night, Saul just, he's had enough and he loses it. He bangs the table. He says to Jonathan, I know you're covering for him. Why is David not here? Like, I've had enough. He just loses it. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30 is where the narrative picks up. writes this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to them, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And hopefully mom's not at the table. That's the only thing I thought as I was reading this. But 
don't I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? <laughs> Again, like Saul, calm down. Like, like Saul's got marriage problems. And here's just a little like ancient times, you know, I, I think this is to be expected. Marriage is tough, one-on-one. Marriage is really tough in these ancient times because the more marriages you have, the more marriage problems you have. Like, that's the thing about Solomon. Solomon was the wisest person in the world, other than the fact he married 700 women. And I say all the time, that meant 700 mother-in-laws. So Solomon's wisdom went to a point, and then it went off the rails. So, so he's there, and he's basically like, hey, hey, Jonathan, I know that you're siding with David. I know that you're covering for David. And then he says this. This is Saul. As long, verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom are ever going to be established. Jonathan, you know what's at stake? What's at stake is you're not going to inherit the kingdom. David's going to come in and usurp it. And that's really what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about my legacy and I'm concerned about you being on the throne. And so then he says this in verse 31. Now send someone to bring David to me for he must die. And Jonathan, who's best friends with David, runs out of his father's presence after that meal and finds David and says, David, you got to leave not just the city. You need to leave the country because my dad, something's wrong. And he's after your life. And literally, he's to the point he wants to kill you. And here's David at this point. He's now 22 years old and he's angry for good reason. He feels alone for good reason. He's risked his life for Saul over and over and over and over again. And he is fearful about how this is going to end up for good reason. And in this case, David's done nothing wrong. And it's so crazy because he did in this moment what many of us do when we feel anger, when we feel like we're alone, or we feel like there is so much fear for the future, David panicked. And the thing is, if you were to look on the outside, like 3,000 foot view with what David is about to consider, you would go, David, why are you considering this? David, why would you ever run? David, why would you ever even have this as part of your mindset? Like, David, do you not remember? And here's the reality. Like, we all know this. You don't need, you need me to tell you this, but people look at our lives at certain points, at certain seasons. In fact, we can look to our own lives. Like every one of us probably can look back to some kind of season or circumstance. And now in hindsight, we go, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I take that call? Why did I lease that? Why did I make that financial decision? Why did I decide it would be a good idea to walk out? Like what was I thinking? And we have unbelievable insight when it comes to other people, but we miss it with us. And the reason for all of that is because when you are angry, when you feel alone or isolated, and when you are fearful about the future, just mark it down, you have the propensity to panic and to do things that you would never do otherwise. And so 1 Samuel 21 Skipping over verse one, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now, here's what you need to know. Jerusalem was supposed to be their capital, but they didn't own the rights or have the land around Jerusalem during this time. And so generally, the capital is where the temple would be and where the Ark of the Covenant would be, which was like basically the manifestation of God's presence in the Old Testament. And so since they didn't have a capital, they would move the Ark of the Covenant in the temple around to basically the safest place at the time. And that would become their makeshift capital, makeshift temple. And that would be where the Ark would be at. And that would be kind of where the presence of God would be at. And the priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. That was the Old Testament system. So Nob during this time was the safest place. 
It became their makeshift capital. That's where the priests were at. That's where Ahimelech was at. And so Ahimelech, verse 1, trembled when he met David. And he asked him, why, 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 why are you alone? Like, why, why is no one with you? And the reason Ahimelech is so afraid is because he's the most powerful man in Israel. Again, regardless of the title, David's the guy. You don't travel alone. You don't show up with just you, you and the priest. Like you come with an entourage, you come with about a thousand men, you come with escalades and security. Like you come, like you're David. And so immediately Ahimelech is like nervous and knows something's up because this just doesn't happen. And so David answered Ahimelech the priest. And at this moment he begins to lie out of his anger, out of his fear, out of the feelings of I'm all alone. I don't know where this is gonna end up. And he says to him, the king sent me, talking about Saul, on a mission. And he said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. It's a secret mission. And as for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place, but it's classified information. I can't tell you. And immediately Ahimelech is like, what? Like that, that doesn't happen. You don't go on your own. I, secret missions, sending your men to a certain place. Like it just doesn't sound right. And David right here starts to tell a lie to Ahimelech and he has no idea that eventually it's gonna cost Ahimelech his life. And it's gonna cost a bunch of other people their lives. And so now then, David says to him, like, what do, you, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, or like whatever you can find. And again, Ahimelech is like, whoa, 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 David, hold on. So you came here alone and you don't have any food and there's no men with you, no security with you, no army around you. Like what, what's up, man? But Ahimelech is the priest. He's not gonna challenge David. So verse four, but the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here. Now just real quick, here's what that meant. On the Sabbath day, According to the custom and the religious temple traditions, they would offer consecrated bread to God, and then God wouldn't eat it. He would just stay there. And then, because it was just a ceremonial thing, and then the priest would come and eat it, and it was just, it was consecrated bread for them. Nobody else was supposed to eat it. It was a big rule. Nobody violates that. And so Ahimelech knew that. So he's like, David, I don't have any food other than the consecrated bread that, that honestly you're not supposed to eat. And so verse six, the priest gave him the consecrated bread. And there David is, he's lied about why he's there. He's lied to be able to get fed. He's lied out of his fear. And just real quick, if you could have been there and dropped into the story, if you could have been there with David, like knowing the landscape of everything that happened in his life, you, you would have said to David, David, what happened to 15-year-old you? What happened to the you that I, I trust in the Lord my God? What happened to the you that's like, my hope is in you all day long? Like, what happened to that version of you? Where'd he go? And so David, verse 8, said to Ahimelech, don't you have a, a spear or a sword here? And Ahimelech's like, you're the most famous warrior in all of Israel. No food. You look a mess. You have no men with you. And you didn't even come with a weapon like, you, you have no weapon on your person. And so David says, I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission, it's secret. There's a certain place I can't tell you about, and it's urgent. Just trust me. And Ahimelech's like, you're a liar. But here's the thing. Just, this is, I hope you get the emotion of what I want to describe in a couple of verses because this is so important. And David should have seen this. But imagine the, the emotion of this moment because it's so dramatic. Essentially, 
David is about to be transported back in time to the moment that catapulted him into fame. The moment that everybody knows about David and Goliath. And this should have been the moment that was a wake-up call for him. What I'm about to describe should have been the moment where David's like, why am I here? Why am I lying about this? Why am I considering these options? This should have been the moment where everything changed for David. And yes, he's done some things already. He's in a place he shouldn't be. He's lying about his whereabouts. But this should have been the moment where he woke up and he realized, I don't need to be here and I shouldn't be here. But he didn't. But like, imagine the moment. I just want to tell some of you that you're in a place right now and God didn't create where you're at. God didn't create what's happening. God didn't create the circumstances or the scenario. But I know this in full confidence of the scripture. God wants to use it. And you may be in a place right now where you've moved into these circumstances and decisions and God's going, I'm doing everything that I can to get your attention and to move you to a place to start asking the questions in light of what I've already done. Why am I here? Why am I considering this? Why am I calling them back? Why am I moving down this road? And God didn't create the circumstance, but God will use it. And there David is. In verse 9, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I don't know if you remember this, David, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. It's right here. And Ahimelech in a moment is going to go grab this sword. That as soon as David sees it, like he remembers. Like imagine, imagine Ahimelech, David, I, I, don't, I don't have anything. I don't have food for you and I don't have any weapons for you. All I have is the sword that you had as a 15-year-old boy when you went down to take on the greatest enemy that Israel has ever known. You want me to get that sword? You remember that time? And David, after the whole meetup with David and Goliath, David kept the sword as a souvenir. For good reason, you would have too. And eventually, though, he realizes, you know what? I didn't win this battle because I was a great warrior. I didn't win this battle because of the sword. And he took it to the temple and actually donated it to the temple. And it was this declaration on David's part. Hey, I didn't win this battle. I didn't win this war. I didn't bring down Goliath. This sword didn't do it. God won the victory and God saw me through. And there he is and Ahimelech is about to to bring this out. And can you imagine the emotion? Come on, can you imagine the memories? Can you imagine as Ahimelech walks out with it and David immediately is transported back and he remembers the smells, he remembers the sounds, he remembers everything that happened as he walked down into the valley of Elah and literally there are warriors, thousands of them on every side. The Israelites have been cowering for weeks. They're scared to death. Goliath is on the other side, the second wall of the the armor shield, and he is defying not just the armies of Israel, but he is, he is speaking against David. He's offended that they would send this little boy out that's never been on a shield wall, has no fighting experience to fight him. And David remembers going down into that valley with all of that going on with nothing but a slingshot. And his mind is immediately transported back to that moment. And if you were to look into the story, you would go, God, and David... What happened to you? 
What happened to the clear-eyed, confident kid at 15 years old that defied what nobody else was willing to fight? What happened to the kid that in the Valley of Elah literally walked toward Goliath and faced him down and said, Goliath, I just need to give you a little message. I know I don't have fighting experience. I'm all of like 5'8". I don't look like a king. You're nine foot tall. We've been out here for weeks. Everybody is scared of you, but you just need to know your fate. I am about to take you down. I am about to deliver the nation of Israel through God's power. I am about to defeat you because you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come in the name of the Lord Almighty. And you are defying the armies of Israel. You're not defying me. You're not defying just, you know, our battle, our commanders. You are defying the living God. And so I'm going to feed the carcasses of the Philistines to the beasts of the air and, the, and the, the birds of the air so that everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. And then verse 47 of 1 Samuel 17. And all those gathered here are going to know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's and Goliath. By the way, he is about to deliver you into my hands. That's the memories that David had in that moment that he couldn't avoid. And you look at it and go, what happened to that kid? Like, what happened to that confidence? What happened to that faith? What happened to that poet who wrote, I'm going to fear no evil because you're with me? Where'd he go? Where'd that faith go? Where'd that confidence in the Lord go? Answer, he was angry, he was isolated, and he was afraid. And in that moment for every single one of us, when you are angry, isolated, and afraid, those three giants have the potential to overwhelm the giants in your life that have already been taken down and to forget everything that God has done previously. And here's David, and it's a physical reminder of God's power and God's faithfulness, and David misses it. And so the priest replied, it's wrapped in a cloth, behind the ephod, which is like a garment that the priest wore. And if you want it, you can take it because there's no sword here but that one. And this is the moment that's going to become one of David's greatest regrets, one of his two greatest regrets. It's going to become a permanent part of his story. So David said, there's none like it, so give it to me. And David, who defeated the greatest warrior that Israel had ever known as a 15-year-old kid, lies, manipulates, tries to control the outcome, and then he's faced with this literal physical reminder of everything that God had done, and he didn't even see it, and he didn't even remember it. And he ends up with a flawed weapon and a flawed response and a disastrous outcome. And this is our story. Like, this is where our story intersects. Because you just need to know this, and, and some of you, I want you to lean in for just a second, whether you're on radio, you're, you're podcasting, or physically, you're sitting in a seat right now, because you're going to think I'm, I'm reading your text, or I, like, I, I know that your emotions, and the reality is this is just, it's, it's common to all of us, and it's human nature, but you just need to know. In the moments where you need God the most, you are least tempted to run in his direction. The moment, this is human nature, this is sin nature, this is, this is brokenness by the fall. The moment that you need God the most, you are most tempted 
you are most tempted to opt for things that are in the opposite direction. And in fact, you are most tempted to run after things that didn't work previously, and they're not going to work again. But in that moment, you start to lie to yourself and be seduced about what I've said a hundred times, that even though this hasn't worked 10 times previously, a little bit more of what didn't work is going to work. And so if I can just do it the 11th time, it's going to be all right. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to somehow get myself out of these emotions. And you're going to end up in a place where you only compound the problem, and we see it so easily in other people. You got people around you right now, and they're making decisions out of their anger that they've never dealt with, and you look in to go, I understand you're angry, and you maybe have a rightful reason to be angry, but this decision is not going to go well for you. You're making a decision purely off of your anger that's going to have ramifications that you don't want, or you watch people, and they feel alone, and they feel isolated, and they start to reach for things, and on the outside, you're going, that's not going to end well. Your fear of the future, I get it. I understand you don't know how this is going to work out, but this is not going to help your situation. This is only going to make your situation worse. This is not going to end good for you. And it is so easy to see in other people. And it is so difficult to see with us because all of us are moved into this place where we just start to believe the lie. Well, I'll be different. My situation is different. My circumstance is different. I know this hasn't worked for 700 other couples, but we're unique. It's going to work for us. It'll work out for us. And we start to buy into what David bought into in this moment, that because of my circumstances and what I feel right now, if God were with me, this wouldn't be happening to me. And can I just tell you a little bit of what I've learned and then I'm going to move on, is that it is so easy to trust God when you have nothing to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. I've said this a hundred times. But like it's easy when you have a busted up ghetto Saturn ion and the air doesn't work and there's like $17 in your pocket and you're eating ramen noodles and drinking Dr. Thunder and you're like, Jesus, I just surrender everything to you. And Jesus is like, you just keep that. I don't even want it. <laughs> but it's so easy in that moment. You know, or when, when things are going really well, family's going really well, financially things are going really well, education's going really well. In that moment, sometimes it's harder to trust God. Other times it's easier to trust God because it's easy to give lip service. It's easier to attend a service. It's easier to raise your hand and talk about how good God is because you seemingly don't have anything to trust him for and anything to trust him with in that moment. Things are going great for you. You, you know, one of the things that breaks my heart as a pastor is to know as God grows our gathering, we see hundreds of people come in every year that there are so many that will start going, God, you are so amazing. You are so good. I want to follow you. I want to know of your love for me. I want to love you. And as long as you don't have anything to trust him with and trust him for, you're good. And there's going to be hundreds of people who are going to hit a bump and they're not going to understand what God's doing and they're going to feel afraid and they're going to feel alone and they're going to be uncertain about the future. And it's in that moment moment where they're most tempted to walk away from God, where they're going to walk away from God, because the moment you actually need to trust him for something is the moment you are most tempted to walk away from him. It is so, hear me, it is so easy when there's nothing to trust him with. It's so easy when everybody's healthy. It's so easy when all the trend lines are up into the right. The moment you got to trust him with and trust him for So David takes Goliath's sword <laughs> and he goes to the land of the Philistines by himself. Good move, bro. You're going to go enemy territory with nothing but a sword and no men with you. And then he goes to the Philistine commanders and he goes to Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath. Good move, David. You're smarter than this. 
And he gets there and he tries to plead with the Philistine commanders, hey, can you just let me, give me a place in your army? I wanna fight for you guys. And none of them are buying it. Like you're David of David and Goliath. You're not fighting in the Philistine army. And so then you should just read the Bible. David goes nuts. He has no other option but to pretend he's insane. And he starts scratching himself. He starts tearing his clothes off. He starts slobbering all over himself to try to convince them that he's just mentally insane, incapacitated, like he's just so that they would let him go. And David has no else, no other place to go. And so he goes and hides out in a cave. The David that took down Goliath as a 15-year-old kid, the David of I'm going to trust the Lord. My God, I'm going to put my hope in him all day long. I am going to face down the greatest enemy of Israel because he's not defying me or the armies of Israel. He's defying God, and my confidence is in God. And enemy, any enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. And so I believe that God's going to do this. That David is hiding out, having lied and run and pretended he was insane in a cave. That's where David is. And after a little while, David finally comes to his senses, and he realizes, what, what am I doing? And he goes and tries to find the prophets in Israel and basically says to them, hey, hey listen, I, I want to know what God's will is. I want to know what God's, God wants. I've been running. I've been hiding. But when David got to that point, the damage had already been done. Because when David had a conversation with Ahimelech, the priest, back in Nob, Ahimelech and David weren't the only people in the room. There was a guy by the name of Doag who was outside of the door that heard the conversation. And he heard just enough of the conversation to go back to Saul and tell him everything that happened. But in Doag's retelling of the story, he told the fact that David and Ahimelech were conspiring against Saul, the king of Israel, which wasn't the case. And so he runs back to Saul and he basically says this in 1 Samuel 22.10, this is Doag talking to King Saul about what he had heard between David and Ahimelech. He says, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David, and he gave him provisions and a sword, the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Basically, Saul, Ahimelech fed and armed your enemy, and now David and Ahimelech are, are conspiring together. And so verse 11, the king sent for the high priest Ahimelech. So basically, hey, Doag, go get him. If that's happening, I want you to go get him. And so go get him all of his men and family who were the priests at Nob and, and they all came to the king. And then verse 13, Saul said to him, Ahimelech, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him. Basically, Ahimelech, I know, Doag told me, you are siding with David just like my son, just like my daughter who stabbed me in the back. I know that you guys are conspiring against me so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Saul's just absolutely insane and paranoid. And then verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, basically, King Saul, what? What are you talking about? Who of all of your servants is as loyal as David? He's not against you. He's highly respected in your household. Right before that, he's captain of your bodyguard, meaning you've trusted him with your life, and David's come through for you every single time. There's nobody that respects him more. There's nobody that's been more loyal to you. In the verse 15. And was the day the first time that I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of this of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So I don't know what you're talking about. And, and as far as I'm concerned, David is the most faithful man you've ever had. Verse 16, but the king, King Saul said, he's gonna surely die. 
Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Because Saul's crazy. And he's angry. And he's alone. And he's afraid of his kingdom. And so verse 17, the king ordered the guards at his side. I want you guys to turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. And all of Saul's warriors, all of his, his armies, his commander, basically they refuse to do what Saul wants them to do. Because they're like, Saul, we're with you, but this is where we draw the line because we still have respect for God and the priests of God. We're not going to kill these people, but there's Doag. And Doag's like, I'll do it. Send me in. And Doag turns around and he kills 85 of the priests from Nob. And then Saul's not done. He's like, Doag, I want you to go back to Nob. And I want you to hunt down every family and every individual and every infant and every child. And I want you to obliterate the whole city. And Doag goes back and there is a slaughter that is hard to wrap your mind around. And literally almost everybody in Nob is killed. Every one of the priests of God are killed. Only a few people even survive what happens. And one of those people is one of Ahimelech's sons. And he runs back to David and gets there as quick as he can, terrified and out of breath, and says, David, I, I got to tell you what happened. He tells David the whole story. And David is heartbroken. And it says at the end of the section of verse 22, of 1 Samuel 22, David says, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Because taking matters into your own hands it feels good. It just doesn't end good. And some of you are in a place right now, what I'm about to speak to in the next couple minutes is going to be so personal to you, it's going to be a little terrifying. And you just need to know, when, you, when you're in a place of anger, when you're in a place where you feel alone, when you're in a place where you're fearing the future, you are tempted and pushed to do things that you normally would not consider under any other circumstances. And your enemy knows that. So let me ask you a question. What is your anger, loneliness, and fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? You've never considered calling them back, and now you're considering calling them back. You've never considered taking that risk, and you know that risk is way out of bounds, and yet for some reason you're drawn in that direction, and you never have been in any previous season. You have that fantasy that's been rolling around, and it, that's all it's been, and now there's this thing, this compulsion in you to act on something that you know you shouldn't act on. But my question is, what is your anger? Because you wouldn't consider this under any other circumstances. What is your anger? What is the fact that you feel alone right now? What is your fear of the future causing you to consider that you wouldn't consider under any other circumstances. Let me ask you this way. Who is your anger, loneliness, and fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? They've made their feelings really, really known, but you shut that down every single time, and now for the first time, you are tempted to move in their direction. Like, you, you've never been tempted to call back, to return the call. You've never been tempted to send the message. And all of a sudden, you are in a place where you're not just considering it. You are considering them. And there is some anger that you're carrying. There's some loneliness that you feel. There's some fear about the future. And now there are some people that you are considering and some decisions around them that you've never considered before. And here you are. Let me ask this. Who besides you 
do your considerations put at risk? And I already know the answer. I don't even need to know you. I don't even need to know your name. The answer to the question is, the people that are always put at risk, the people that you love the most, and the people that you love the most, and the people who love you the most, the people that are most valuable and that are most personal to you in that moment where you, when you are tempted to act on something that you've never acted on before, it is the people that you love the most and the people who love you the most that it is going to hurt the most. And some of you know that because you had a dad that had anger issues that he never dealt with, and now you're raising kids that don't even know your dad, and you're still dealing with the ramifications of his decisions. So some of you, you were in a home with a mom that had abandonment and depression issues that she could never get control of and everybody was kind of trying to live life around it and those decisions are still having a multi-generational impact and the question really is, whose future hangs in the balance of you giving in to your anger, your isolation, and your fear? Your marriage, your future marriage, your kids, the grandkids that you don't even know, your parents, like, who hangs in the balance of you giving in to your fear, your anger, and your isolation? And the last question, what advice would you give somebody who is you? What advice would you give somebody who is you? It is so easy to see in the mirror. It is so easy to see other people's stupidity and, and Monday morning quarterback it. It is so hard to see when it's us. It is so hard to see in the mirror. And the thing that we think is somehow it's gonna be different. And I just wanna tell you in love, you are special. You are made in the image of God. You are unique. Your circumstance is not unique. It is a well-worn, predictable path that Solomon talks about in grace and love to go, listen, I just wanna give you a heads up about the future. The prudent, the wise, they see danger and they take refuge. The simple keep going and they ultimately suffer for it, not because of God's retribution or God's anger. As we say all the time, God took care of his anger at the cross. All of sin for all of humanity was paid for on the cross as Jesus died for it. And then he got off the cross and after three days walked out of a grave alive so that it is finished, really did echo throughout all of humanity as you place your faith and trust in his death, his resurrection, and the fact that you can't earn it and he earned it for you. It really is done. It really is finished. God's anger, God's retribution, God's payback was paid back on Jesus at the cross. And now you can have a relationship with no shame, no condemnation. God's not trying to get you back because he was already got back at the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But God created a world where we would not be coerced and that there would be cause and effect. And we understand it with every other area of our life other than our life. We understand when we get in a car and we get toward I-75 North, we're going to end up somewhere in Central Florida. We're going to end up somewhere near Orlando. You're not going to get in your car, drive on I-75 North, but go, man, I have great intentions. I think it's going to be different for me. I think I'm going to head north, but I'm going to end up in the Keys. And it's just going to happen for you. If you just pray enough, if you're unique enough, if you're different enough, then somehow you're going to defy all of the logic of directions. And it doesn't work that way physically and it doesn't work that way in life. If you get on I-75 North, you're headed North. If you get on I-75 South, you're headed South. And it doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how unique you are. It doesn't matter your circumstances. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. That's just where you are going. And I just want to tell you in love, you are so unique and God has a destiny and will for your life, but your feelings, your emotions, and your circumstances, they aren't unique. And you are reaching for things that already have a predictable outcome that was given 2,000 
2,000 years ago, A is going to lead to B, and you are going to end up in the place that you don't want to end up, and your Savior is going, there is a better way, and this may be the day to remind you, why are you here? Why are you considering this? Why have you canceled out my faithfulness in every other area of your life? Come to me. And we know what advice David would give David later on in his life as he got more clarity in Psalm 99 when he said this, and I love this. The Lord. David's like, I wish I would have known this as a 22-year-old kid. I wish I would have known this when I was tempted on a rooftop to enter into a relationship I knew was wrong. But David, in his clearest moments, understood what he wrote. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Not an affair. Not self-medication not another lease, not the intoxication. If we, if we just buy a little bit more, we're going to feel better. Not alcohol, not, not porn. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold, something that we don't get, but they understood in their military culture. What David's saying is, listen, when, when you are most likely to and tempted not to, the place that you need to run and the person that you need to run to is God that he is a refuge, he is a stronghold in times of trouble. And David would say, I just want to give you a heads up. I took refuge in trying to control the outcomes of my life, and it was a disaster. But the Lord's a refuge for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. And verse 10, those, God, who know your name, they trust in you. For you, Lord... I wish I would have remembered this. You, Lord. In some cases, I have a physical, tangible reminder. In some cases, right now, you are on the verge of something, and there is a physical, tangible reminder right in front of you. And God's going, would you remember? You didn't think you could get pregnant, and here they are. You didn't think I could save that marriage, And here you are. You didn't think you could make it through that anxiety without taking your life. Here you are. I'm literally right in front of you going, would you remember? Those who know your name trust in you for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And David's like, you were with me then, and you're with me now. If you're a skeptic, I love this, and I'm just going to end with this part, but you should just consider this. A thousand years later, a thousand years after this incident, David's most famous and important descendant comes rolling in to the city of David, to a bunch of people who were so angry at the oppression of Rome, and they were so isolated and alone because no prophet had spoken in over 400 years. And they were so afraid of the future and they were overtaxed and they were on the verge of giving up. And a thousand years after this, David's most famous descendants comes into that city and he would say these words that are so powerful and it would change everything for us. When he would say in Matthew 28, 11, come to me. And in this moment, Jesus would place himself in the place of God that no longer is it some ethereal God out here somewhere. God has come to planet Earth. God in a body. 
If you want to know what God's like, Jesus would say, look at me. If you want to know how he feels about you, look at me. If you want to know the kind of freedom I have for your future, look at me. Watch me. See me. Come to me, Jesus. All you who are weary and burdened, And feel like you can't carry the weight any longer. And I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Learn what I want. Learn who I am. Learn what I think about you. For I, Jesus, am gentle and humble in heart. And I love this. Take this to the bank and you will find rest for your soul. But in this moment, you are most tempted to run away. And you're going to have the choice to run toward what oftentimes you opt to not run toward or you have the decision to run away. And you just need to know this. Every time you run away from God in those moments of fear and anger and isolation, just don't forget you are always running to something else. And you have to decide if what you're running to is worth it. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. And then I love this because it's personal. Your stronghold in times of trouble. Would you guys stand with me? Both campuses. Would you engage in this moment right now if you're online via radio as much as you can, depending on the distractions around you, as much as we can stay where we're at? Maybe nothing's going on with you, but I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is pinning other people to their seats in this moment, and it's a big deal. So as much as you can be sensitive to that, that would be amazing. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And for some of you, it's we get so easily enamored with a cultural game of feeling feelings and emotion and feeling like that's a religious experience and then we leave and we don't do anything. And so this is the moment for some of you where you needed to be reminded and reminded and the fact that I'm even talking about this today is a reminder that God's going, do you not remember? Do you not remember? And you need to take a step whether it's it's just telling somebody right now what you're walking through. To, to go somewhere after the service and let us help you to, to start to get in the word every single day to go, God, you're living and powerful. I want you to speak to me. I want you to, I want to learn from you. It's getting into a community group to go, I, God speaks in community, so I need to get around some other people as part of this movement, which is what Jesus promised. I'm gonna peace out on planet earth. He talks about in the gospels, but I'm gonna send you a comforter. I'm gonna send you the power of the spirit, and then I'm gonna start a movement, and that movement literally is gonna be my physical representation. So you gotta get out of yourself, and you gotta get with other people in that community, and literally through that, I'm gonna speak through those people, and they're gonna be my voice. And so you need to take a step there. Some of you need to get into counseling. And some of you in this moment just physically need to declare there's some anger that I'm carrying. There's some aloneness that I feel. There's even some stuff that maybe I feel toward God that I've been struggling with. There's some fear of the future. And, and there's some, it's maybe only a thought in this moment, but there's some thoughts that are beginning to stir up in me and considerations that I never have considered before. And in this moment, I wanna declare, God, I, I want to run to you. I want to come to you. I want to receive your invitation. I'm weary, I'm weighed down, and I need you. 
And if you're in that place, would you just lift up your hand right now? And I know there's a lot of people I physically can't see right now that, that God's moving in your heart, but like you just need to make a physical declaration that is only the beginning. But sometimes you just need to let you know that I'm serious about this. And some of you then, you need to follow that up with walking out of here and taking a step. Some of you need to get on your knees and cry out to go, God, I just, I, right now, I want to move in your direction. I need your help. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I pray that, that you would move in us to take the step that we need to take. And God, I pray for others of us right now, you would just confirm what we've been wrestling with, that you are here, that you are with us. And this is the moment where we have something to trust you with. This is the moment that we have something to trust you for. And you are going you're going to move on our behalf because it's exactly what you've promised to do. But help us not to run. Help us not to try to get to a place where we're controlling the outcomes of our life. But this is the moment where we declare, God, I'm gonna press into you, Jesus. I'm gonna lean into you. And I'm gonna trust you to do what I can't do. So Lord, we pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this message, would you do us a favor and rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher? You can actually now listen to us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Basically, this just helps us get the message of Jesus out to more people. And the other thing I would say is, we would love for you to join us at one of our gatherings. One of the things we work really hard at is to create a safe place for people to be able to ask questions, to be able to investigate and grow in their faith if they're longtime followers of Jesus. And one of the things that we say a lot is regardless of what background you're coming from, you can belong here before you believe. And so if you want more information about our church, our location, service times, just go to our website at centerpointfl.org.